You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Web Radio. This is Ron Bachman, and you're listening to the program Healthcare Insight. We have been talking about uh, health reform. We've been talking about ideas of creating a private free market. If you're just joining us as a listener, there's a lot of information, a lot of detail that we've been providing about how to create a private free market healthcare system in the United States, a way to replace Obamacare with free market ideas that will provide for guaranteed issue, provide for coverage of pre-existing conditions, and so much more that needs to be done to the healthcare system. It's all detailed and outlined in some of our previous podcasts. We're currently in the middle of a series of podcasts that are talking about the concept of healthcare consumerism. Healthcare consumerism is an idea that's broader than account-based plans, consumer-driven healthcare, HSAs, HRAs. They're all encompassed within the idea of healthcare consumerism, but they're subsets of healthcare consumerism. Healthcare consumerism I define as a product or plan design that empowers individuals, empowers the patient with information and financial support within the insurance concept. It may be that that financial support is account-based plans. It may be that it's a reducing deductible. It may be that it's a lower uh, premium contribution from the employee if you're in an employer plan. There's a lot of different ways to reward and incentivize people to reinforce good behaviors. And that's what healthcare consumerism is all about. It's not just an account-based plan, but the account-based plans today make up the vast majority of what I would call healthcare consumerism. They are an important part. HSAs are a critical part of moving forward under the concept of healthcare consumerism. It's just not the only approach that can be taken to reinforce, which is what's really required, to reinforce getting better education on your condition or issue of working with your doctor. So that's what we've been talking about. And we're actually in the process of describing a five-generation model. It's not an academic model of healthcare consumerism. It's the things that are actually occurring in the marketplace. It's not a think tank model. It's things that we can actually point to insurance companies, third-party administrators, those people are providing vendor services of various types. What they're actually doing in the marketplace to deliver better products, better services that empower the consumer, empower the patient. Those are the things that we've been talking about. And today, we're down to the third generation of the five generations that I want to talk about. We'll touch on the other first and second generations, but they're completely outlined in last week's program. So I won't waste everybody's time by rehashing the first and second generation and try to delve more directly into the description of the third generation and beyond that during this hour's program. But just to get everybody up to speed real quickly, first generation was basically high deductible health plans with an account underneath it, and usually that account was established at the enrollment period with a contribution by the employer or payments into an account 
like the HSA count, by both the employer and or the employee, and sometimes only the employee. And so that had a big change in the marketplace. It lowered premiums because it was a high deductible plan, but it empowered individuals with monies before they reached the deductible that could be spent on the things that they wanted, typically things like office visits, prescription drugs, lower cost items, but they would have a big impact. Second generation was really about more behavioral change with rewards and incentives. So the people who were doing the right things not only got an account up front, but got potentially payments and reinforcements of funding of their HSA account or their HR account throughout the year. That's a major change going to the second generation because it says that my insurance is not a, a static benefit. It's a dynamic benefit that can change during the year based upon the opportunities that a, a policyholder has, a member of the plan has, to do things during the year that would increase that account. So now we go into third generation. And third generation I describe as being involved in what I would call health and performance. Third-generation healthcare consumers and plans recognize that healthy employees directly impact the corporate bottom line. So we're talking about much more of an integration of healthcare from the employee side and from the corporate side, given that most people get insurance through their employer. First and second generation really didn't recognize fully the impact of an employer's uh, program on the employee and the employee's health on the employer. This is a more integrated approach of health care between the plan member and the company. So companies moving to third generation concepts recognize that health plans are the maintenance contracts on their human capital, their most valuable asset. This generation focuses on the workplace, workplace health, safety, and workplace stress management in particular. We're going to have a whole section probably in the next segment on workplace stress management. But let's talk about those five building blocks that we've discussed with Generations 1 and 2 and see how they apply in Generation 3. And just as a reminder of those five building blocks within each generation, their personal care accounts, their health management, their condition management, health literacy, and incentives and rewards. Those are the five that I'll focus on. You may, as listeners of this, come up with another basic building block. But I want to talk about those five because they are easily defined, easily identified, and are obviously impactful on any plan design uh, that can be generated by a benefit manager, by a corporation, or an insurance company offering up individual or small group plans. So let's take a look at personal care accounts under a third-generation model. The third-generation healthcare consumerism focuses the impact on broad business metrics of productivity, absenteeism, what I'll call impaired presenteeism, turnover, accident rates, unscheduled sick days, teaming and creativity. Those are all issues that affect an employer that can also be impacted by the type of healthcare program that an employer institutes for their employees. The IRS guidelines give an employer the full power of structuring employee use and applicability of HRAs. In other words, there's no specific plan design that's required to put in that kind of an account-based plan. 
third-generation HRAs can accommodate incentives and rewards for broader corporate initiatives. So it's not just an individual's activity, but it could be a group activity, could be a department activity, could be a various number of things that would allow for the employer to say, I'm going to put more, more money into your health reimbursement arrangement. For example, accounts may be increased as a result of individual or group meeting corporate metrics of operational performance, safety standards, sales, educational standards, that is like CPE credits, employee of the month, etc. A mixture of individual and group awards as a new dimension to the total compensation package with the creative and flexible possibilities of HRAs, they can be the healthcare version of airlines' f- frequent flyer programs. In other words, the more you do, the more activities, the more things you qualify for, you'll get rewards and incentives. Maybe you want to relate it to Girl Scouts or Boy Scouts getting activity badges so that the more they do, the better they are off, the more rewards and incentives to encourage more of the similar type of behavior. But besides HRAs, HSAs, or health savings accounts, are another great way to accumulate incentives and rewards for health and health care decisions that save the employer costs. If plan members are doing the right things, part of the resulting lower claim costs could be part of a shared savings program. Shared savings reinforces good behaviors. Success breeds success, and it sends the message the health and healthcare is a mutually benefit activity, benefiting both the plan sponsor and the plan member. Of course, there are ways other than HRAs and HSAs to reward plan members. As I mentioned at the beginning of this, those are critical items. Some would call them consumer-driven type plans, but they're a subset of the broader term healthcare consumerism. For example, cost-sharing features, deductibles, and co-pays could be lowered. Employee contributions can be reduced. And even new benefit offerings can be added for doing the right things. Well, let's take a look at the second building block. Third-generation health management links individual health to business and operational performance. Third-generation preventive care emphasizes an array of programs designed to maintain or improve employee functionality and organizational performance. New measures may need to be established that can make the links among personal safety, occupational hazards, accident prevention, prevention of worksite violence, and stress with overall corporate costs and corporate functionality. Most companies don't have some of those metrics, so in many ways they may need to be established in order to have an effective third-generation program. Calculating the return on investment for prevention and wellness and the direct impact on corporate metrics can be challenging due to the multitude of variables that influence health and business functionality. However, some employers are examining the correlation between employee participation and health promotion and wellness programs with direct medical plan costs and some business unit operational metrics. The Trade Association HERO, H-E-R-O, Health is a leader in such studies. The link between healthcare and performance issues will continue to develop as third generation plans continue to evolve. While HIPAA 
generally prohibits plans from differing benefits or premiums based on health status, employers can still design and implement wellness programs with financial incentives. Just recognize that only a bona fide wellness program allows for rewards based on health standards or health outcomes, that is, things like body mass index, blood pressure, nicotine use, cholesterol. Those are things that are allowed if you have a bona fide wellness program as defined in law. And there are specific items in the law that are allowed to create a wellness program to do those kinds of incentives and set the limits on what some of those incentives are allowed to be. Well, time goes fast, and we're running out of time for this segment. We have a uh, hard stop for a commercial coming up. So we're going to come back and finish up this part of Generation 2 and continue and go as far as we can into the generations in the next segments. So hang with me. We'll be right back. I hope this stuff is enlightening, is exciting, and creates some new possibilities for how you think about Healthcare, how you think about healthcare consumerism, and how you draw the relationship to consumer-driven healthcare plans to create better benefit for all the plan members involved, and how we move forward to create a healthier society. We'll be right back. This is America's Web Radio. Would you like to have a show, talk about your business, or express your opinion on America's Web Radio? Just email gm at americaswebradio.com and we'll get back to you. Thank you. Welcome back to America's Web Radio. You're listening to uh, Healthcare Insight. My name is Ron Bachman, and we're going through the concept of healthcare consumerism. Healthcare consumerism is a way of empowering individuals with their own money to pay for healthcare costs so that they are judicious in the selection of services. And it's not the distortion of a third party reimbursement system for all of our healthcare services that mean we just want more and more of whatever we get because. It's not really costing us very much. So account-based plans are a critical part of that, although they're not the whole concept of healthcare consumerism. I see healthcare consumerism as a broad umbrella under which account-based plans are critical. But we're going now through Generation 3, and I want to continue with those five building blocks. I want to talk about condition management programs next, that is, those things, chronic and condition, chronic and persistent conditions, things like obesity, which are not diseases but are a condition, and how does that fit into a third generation model that shows in third generation how corporation programs outside of healthcare even affect our healthcare, and how the healthcare of an individual affects the company. So it's a two way street of interacting. Uh, impacts, both the individual impact on the corporate side and the corporate impacting the employee's health. So under condition management, third generation programs focus on impacting not only health and healthcare costs, but other corporate metrics such as productivity, absenteeism, disability, turnover, unscheduled sick leave, presenteeism, 
and things like workers' compensation. An important tool for discovering the key areas affecting the business entity is to have all employees participate in taking a wellness assessment, also called a health risk appraisal. I don't like the term health risk appraisal. Nobody wants to be high risk. They don't want their risk appraised. But many people would not object to having a wellness assessment. I prefer that term, wellness assessment. An aggregate employee survey information and population management tools like wellness assessments can direct an employer's education and worksite assistance program. So in other words, you do a survey on what the issues are within your company. You may find that there's a particular disease, illness, sickness, concern that employees have for themselves and or their families that need to be addressed more specifically. That's the whole reason and purpose of a health risk appraisal or a wellness assessment, as I prefer to call it. Now, some companies and insurance companies actually use that to identify problem people. And in the perfect world, those are the people that they would target assistance to. Unfortunately, we don't always live in a perfect world. And wellness assessments by some companies or insurance companies can be to identify employees that they'll ultimately wind up dismissing. Now, that's illegal. You can't do that. But I've seen it done. I've witnessed it firsthand. So I know that that can happen. So there's a great risk that needs to be protected. Employees need to know that risk. And if it's abused, then there should be some sort of a lawsuit or penalty. The data-supported condition management programs can really assist members with better health decisions and favorably impact the organization with healthy employees to help them get healthy, to stay healthy. So wellness assessments can be extremely valuable in establishing an appropriate healthcare consumerism program. It is difficult to segment third-generation consumer management programs from other services impacting human capital. The following is a spectrum of programs that, when integrated, will produce savings for health benefit budgets, but can go further in producing an efficient, optimally functional organization. These areas establish the foundation for third-generation what I'll call integrated health and performance programs. So you have programs like case management and employee assistance programs. They can be very important in establishing early intervention for your employees to be really helpful to keep people healthy and to catch diseases and conditions and concerns early on. In terms of prevention, Disease management programs and absent management programs can really be helpful with prevention of diseases. People have a knowledge of what can happen if they're not taking care of themselves. Demand management and condition management programs can also be helpful with wellness. And organizational support programs around population management, looking at the overall, not looking at individuals, but the overall population of employees, of plan members, of dependents as well. 
can help to create a culture of health and well-being. And that can lead to the idea of shared responsibility. We're all in this together. We've all got to do some the same things to be healthy and to create good teaming within an organization, to create good uh, idea sharing, uh, to be able to be compatible with your fellow workers. More, also, another feature is the idea of personal accountability. Does your organization really support personal accountability? And can you establish some data-driven metrics that would support the idea of rewarding people for their own personal accountability? Quality management programs. That can be the basis for establishing shared savings. And a concept that I've talked about in other podcasts that some call truly human leadership, that is recognizing the value of individuals throughout your organization and not just trying to get them involved in making decisions and recognizing their value with healthcare, but recognizing their value as human beings throughout the organization with leadership really taking the lead on making it clear to the employees that they really care about them as individuals. Well, one way to start One way to optimize third-generation consumerism and health and performance opportunities is to integrate these population management and condition management, case management, and quality management, those things I just mentioned. So population management is an example. It really is an idea of affecting health and healthcare decisions in an aggregate way. That may come from your employee surveys, your wellness assessments, So you can have programs that would focus on things like diet, exercise, lifestyle, stress management, substance abuse. Those can be things that across the board are good in a third generation idea of dealing with condition management programs. As far as condition management more directly, you can target areas like symptoms, conditions, functionality, and improved performance. Do they reflect an area that something's going on with an individual. Can you evaluate personal, personnel and organizational opportunities? And what are some of the programs you could focus on? Patient education, adherence to doctor's orders, provider support, and what some would call psychosocial support. In other words, helping a person with the stresses that might be occurring that are exacerbating a condition or leading to a condition or early signs of a condition. In the case management area, here you can target things like patient assessments, compliance and treatment. And you can use data metrics to identify the problems or issues that might need support. As far as programs that an employer could implement, they can be things like predictive modeling, personalized support, high-tech, high-touch support, and recognizing comorbidities. So if you have somebody with diabetes, are you really also identifying things like mental health, stress that might be underlying their inability to follow their doctor's orders or to take their medications or to do the right things so they just spiral out of control and you wind up spending more money on physical treatments when the underlying cause might be a uh, mental health issue. So there are all sorts of programs. The last area I'll mention in this segment is quality and cost management programs. 
Here, we're talking about incentives, rewards, and reimbursements that might be helpful in improving the quality and the cost management of your programs. Can you integrate with improving patient-provider relationships? Can you help support that? At the end of the day, that's the most important relationship. The most trusted relationship is that patient-provider relationship. So are you doing programs that will help that? Is there a program of transparency based upon the needs of the individual? Do they really know and understand what their options are, what their treatment care programs might be? Are they able to talk to their doctor with a list of questions that would help identify that they can be better educated, that they can follow the doctor's orders with some purpose? Are there issues that you can develop in programs that reflect on the vendors that are providing these services? Are your vendors really measured so that they can be tested as whether their performance is doing a good job in reaching out to the right people at the right time? So there's a whole series of things that an employer can do to help with disease management programs. Now, we're probably going to run out a little bit of time here, but let me talk about the fourth area that I call health literacy and decision support. We'll pick up the rest on the other side of the commercial that's coming up. But third generation health literacy includes more than education on health and healthcare decisions. It includes interactive user-friendly decision support tools. It includes easy-to-use, impactful health and performance metrics for the company. Aggregated claim and risk assessment data can serve as a foundation help identify opportunities for ongoing improvement. We've mentioned that before. Specialized information, assessment, and self-help and interventions in such areas such as stress through lifestyle and work changes can have a dramatic impact on health and performance issues. It's that critical issue of stress, depression, that can have an enormous impact on the ability of an organization to be as functional and optimally productive as possible. In addition, organizational HR and finance resources can be better leveraged to optimally engage and support the employee's health and well-being and productivity. For example, the technology of personal wearables can create new avenues of communication, reminder messaging, and reinforcements. There can be an integration of hot links to HR programs of financial management, leadership training, family support programs, and other corporate self-help training. So there's lots of opportunities for an organization these days with the technology that's available and the technology that's developing to really engage and make it easy, create an easy path for health literacy and decision support programs. So I encourage employers to take a look at how those programs can be properly integrated into their own healthcare benefit programs and support the improvement in employees' health and healthcare decision-making. Let's take a quick commercial, and we'll come back, and we'll finish out the idea of third-generation healthcare consumers. And we'll be right back. This is America's Web Radio. Would you like to have a show, talk about your business, or express your opinion? On America's Web Radio. Just email gm at americaswebradio.com and we'll get back to you. Thank you. 
Welcome back. You're on America's Web Radio. This is Ron Bachman with the program Healthcare Insight. We continue to talk about Generation 3. Let me move on to the fifth building block of Generation 3, incentives and rewards. Now, let me define incentives and rewards again for those of you just tuning in or haven't caught up on some of the earlier podcasts we've had. The way I see incentives and rewards are their incentives are things that financially are given to a plan member or a policyholder if you're an individual policyholder. That is an encouragement to take some healthy activity that the plan believes will be to your benefit. It's an upfront cost. It's an incentive to do something. Rewards, on the other hand, are financial payments made, granted to an individual or to a group. Rewards are after the fact, after you've accomplished something, you get a reward. Now, the current media and most of the articles you might read about healthcare consumerism or consumer-driven healthcare plans kind of mix those two ideas that, in general, they usually talk about incentives when they mean rewards. So I may mix those terms up, too, and use the word incentive to mean both incentives and rewards with the description of the program and the ultimate payment defining whether it's in advance or after the fact. I tend to want to do rewards more than incentives because rewards recognizes that something has already been accomplished. Some activity has already occurred that is recognized as being beneficial to an individual's health and will lower the cost of the plan and improve the health or health care of the individual. But let me talk about that in more specific details about incentives and rewards in a third-generation program. Third-generation incentive programs include rewards for meeting business goals of productivity, absenteeism, turnover, incentive, or um, uh, accident rates, all sorts of things can include rewards. Rewards can be based on individual or group metrics. Creative designs for matching health reimbursement arrangement incentives to HSA contributions are all possible. For example, employers can match employee HSA contributions with HRA account balances. Of course, the HRA amounts cannot be used for the high deductible health plan deductible coverage, but can be used for the coinsurance after the deductible or for non-qualified medical expenses. So if you have an HSA and an HRA combined, and most employers haven't gone that kind of a complicated structure, you would use the HSA dollars first, and the HRAs cannot be used in a deductible area. They have to be. It's a specialized HRA uh, program that's set up. But you can do those incentives and combine them with HSAs, as an example. HSAs could be positioned as employee contributions and HRAs as employer contributions. That's another way of doing this. With this, the employee gains the maximum tax advantage and portability of HSAs, and the employer maintains the flexibility and cash flow advantages of HRAs. So there's different ways you can do rewards and incentives. By using the HRA matching approach for for HSAs, 
The employer can continue to develop reward programs that directly affect the corporate metrics targeted. So that's just one example of how creative and inventive a third generation can be to meet both the employer and the employee needs. That doesn't have to be a combination, as I just described, of HRA and HSA. It just has to be some sort of an account-based plan that would follow those ideas of rewarding and incentivizing. There are some different rules that you'll need to watch out for, whether it's an HRA or an HSA. But it really doesn't even have to be either of those. As we described, you can have other ways of providing incentives and rewards. You could allow for legal services to be paid. You can allow for vision care to be paid differently or made available. A dental care may be a reward and incentive program. It may be other ways that don't even have account-based plans. It could be American Express gift cards. I mean, it's all sorts of ways you can do rewards and incentives that might help an organization. But the idea here is the interaction of how rewards and incentives can help and affect things like corporate productivity and absenteeism and turnover. So if you can make those connections and find the rewards that incentivize people, because populations are going to be different. An older population might appreciate a certain type of incentive, and a younger population, they're a totally different type. So according to the age of your organization, maybe the industry of your organization, maybe the male-female mix of your organization, you can do all sorts of things. But recognize that your organization is unique. It's different from all other organizations. It's different from your competitors based upon the makeup of your staff, the other benefits that you have in your organization, your organizational culture, the recognition of your employees as to what management is really supporting, those are all different. So you need to develop the right incentives and or rewards that match up with your organization. Now, let's take Generation 3 to another level because one of the critical issues in a Generation 3 program and healthcare consumerism is its relationship to stress management. I can guarantee 100% that if your organization does not have a stress management program, that I can guarantee 100% of the time your employees will have their own stress management program. It may not be what you like. It may not be helpful to your organization. But their stress management program might include comfort food so they get overweight. It may include alcohol, drugs, smoking, all sorts of things that can relieve stress management. It may be oversleeping so that they don't feel the stress of even going to work. So you have a lot of late entries to the job. You may have more unscheduled sick leave. So you need to really take in the third generation concept of integrating the employer and the employee in a continuum, an interactive mutual benefit of a healthcare consumerism program, you need to take into account very heavily the ideas of stress management. So a major part of third generation healthcare consumerism is related to stress and depression in the workplace. Stress and depression costs, including comorbid costs, in other words, things that are related to stress and depression. For U.S. businesses are over $200 billion per year, according to a 2015 study in the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. Third-generation programs of stress management can link 
healthcare, consumerism, and organizational quality, safety, and error reduction programs. Improved product quality and productivity can result with focused efforts to address areas such as stress and depression in the workplace. It is so critical but so overlooked by management how stressed out people are these days in so many different ways, whether it's personal, financial, health, all sorts of stressors that can occur. We're in a fast-moving economy, a fast-moving government, a fast-moving business environment that creates a lot of stress on a lot of people. The U.S. Surgeon General once said, there is no health without mental health. Similarly, there is no effective program of healthcare consumerism without mental health consumerism. It's a basic requirement for any employer implementing healthcare consumerism plans to deal with stress, depression, and more serious mental illnesses. It's important for employers to understand the clinical and cost interrelationships between mind care and body care. Studies show that stress impacts an organization in a number of ways. As far as healthcare costs, it's typically around 21.5% of total healthcare costs. As far as turnover within an organization, 40% of the primary reasons that employees have to leave a company is from stress and depression. A third area, impaired presenteeism. 50% of impaired presenteeism is a function of stress. Disability claims within your organization. 33% of all disability and workers' compensation costs come from stress and depression, mental illnesses. And a fifth area, unscheduled sicknesses. 50%. 50% of the primary reasons that employees take unscheduled absence days is from stress and depression and other mental illness issues. So there's five right there, major reasons why an organization needs to focus on stress impacts. To work for everybody, healthcare consumerism must help the sickest and most vulnerable among us. Mental illnesses present a unique challenge. Depression is a sickness where patients tend to push away caregivers. Many with depression and coexisting physical illnesses will deny their need for care, ignore treatment advice, skip appointments, and are highly non-compliant with medications. A 2014 Kaiser survey showed 48% of employers offer wellness in the workplace. But another survey by the American Psychological Association Center for Organizational Excellence found that despite growing awareness of the importance of a healthy workplace, fewer than half of employees said their organizations provide sufficient resources to help them manage stress and meet their mental health needs. Stress has a distinct correlation with medical issues in other body systems. Stress directions a leading consultancy on stress found that 44% of all adults suffer adverse health effects from stress. 75 to 90% of all physician visits are for stress-related ailments and complaints. And stress is related 
The six leading causes of death, heart disease, cancer, lung ailments, accidents, cirrhosis of the liver, and suicide. So there's a relationship in many ways between the sources of stress and major body systems that we think of as more medical, but they're all related. Give you a quick example. If the source of stress is job, then there typically manifests itself in the muscular system. If the stress is family issues, it can be your digestive system that's impacted. If it's personal, it could be cardiovascular issues that develop. If the source of stress is social, then it could be emotional stress that comes out. Financial, then the endocrine system and the immune system are affected. And if it's environmental, it can be cognitive stress. Now, I'm not saying that these areas of stress always create these body systems or that there's an absolute direct relationship in every case. But there is a correlation. There is an integration. There is a connection between these areas of stress and these body systems that can be affected by our healthcare costs. So we're up against another break. This is Ron Bachman on America's Web Radio, and you're listening to Healthcare Insight. Let's take a break and wrap up the next section, third-generation healthcare consumerism. We'll be right back. Stay with us. This is America's Web Radio. Would you like to have a show, talk about your business, or express your opinion? On America's Web Radio. Just email gm at americaswebradio.com and we'll get back to you. Thank you. Welcome back to America's Web Radio and Healthcare Insight. We're talking about third generation healthcare consumerism and its impact on an organization and how an organization can help an individual, and how an individual by taking care of themselves and having the resources available can help an organization. In particular, what we're talking about and have been talking about for the last several segments of this hour's program is the idea of stress management, the idea of stress and depression in the workplace and how it affects an individual in multiple ways that an employer should really focus on the issues of mental health. Now, most employers don't understand or recognize a lot of the other sophisticated issues of mental health concerns. They recognize mostly stress and depression. That's what they see from their employees. But their family members can be suffering from all sorts of more sophisticated mental health issues of obsessive-compulsive, anorexia, Bipolar, issues that people typically don't really even know or understand what those terms mean or what the implications are or what the signs or recovery possibilities are or how to stabilize many of those issues. So I'm trying to give a little bit extra emphasis for employers to think about the importance of stress management programs that can dramatically improve your organization's productivity and lower your health care costs. 
Because if you don't deal with the mental health issues, you're going to wind up dealing with the manifestations of those in the healthcare areas that I mentioned in our previous segment. So if your plan is not properly dealing with member stress, you will increase the cost of treating these manifestations of stress. And those body systems where health care costs are covered. These correlations are why well-being is a growing area of interest. Providing support programs for the whole person, whether at work or at home, will lower health care costs and improve productivity. Because of the financial stress that many people are feeling in many ways, employers are offering more financial education, more financial information in order to help people deal with their finances, uh, their debts, their repayments, uh, their ability to provide for their families in a much more effective way. Uh, companies are finding that's important. It's not health care, but it clearly relates to health care costs if there's not an opportunity for employees to deal with that level of stress. So the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, or OSHA, as many of us would know it as, has declared stress a hazard of the workplace. Think about that. A hazard of the workplace. There are at least three separate but related costs of stress in the workplace. First, there's the direct mental health costs. As a separate diagnosis, these costs can range from low to high. So you may not need a lot of treatment. You may have stress and never go to a psychologist or a... um, a support group in any way. So your cost might be zero, but you're still going to suffer costs in your organization because it's not being treated properly. The second area would be what I call comorbid condition costs. Many times these are more obvious physical health symptoms that need to be treated, but the underlying mental health issues are ignored. So if you don't treat that depression with a diabetic, you're going to have a lot more costs of rehospitalization because that diabetic may be not taking their medications because they're just depressed. And so you wind up with rehospitalizations that could have been avoided. So there's comorbid conditions in addition to the direct mental health costs. But there's a third and maybe more important, maybe the most important part of these impacts is the indirect corporate costs. And these are the costs from areas that have been mentioned previously, absenteeism, disability, unscheduled sick days, loss of teaming, loss of relationships, relationship conflicts. All sorts of issues can develop within an organization that link back to mental health issues that are untreated. So what I did with all this, because mental health is very important to me, in the work that I've done over many years. I feel very strongly, as many of you can tell, about my passion as we discuss this part of the third generation healthcare consumerism. So with the assistance of many mental health experts and organizations, I put together an organized chart showing the relationships of these three types of corporate costs. And I've listed out medical intensity from low to high, the direct mental health costs, the comorbid costs, 
and the indirect corporate costs, those three areas. Now, I'm not going to go through all the details here. If anybody wants it, it's in the book I've written called Understanding Healthcare Consumerism. And in the future, I can link parts of these areas into a, um, a website. Uh, I can post them on LinkedIn. You might find them there. Uh, or you can just write me at ronbachman at healthcarevisions.net, and I'll send you uh, more detailed information in some of these charts. But let me just describe the charts for a second in a broad sense. The medical intensity, the spectrum, if you will, of mental health issues can go from areas like frustration, anxiety, low stress, minor depression. Those can be low-cost, direct mental health costs. And we can go up to things like high stress, major depression, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, obsessive-compulsive, panic disorder, anorexia, bulimia, PTSD, other things that are much higher in cost as mental health goes. So the direct mental health costs can go from low to high, and there's many segments, if you will, of that spectrum in between that I've identified. But let's just take the low to those high costs. Those are direct mental health costs. But there's comorbid condition costs with each of those. At the low level, frustration, anxiety, for example, it could lead to tobacco use, which create more healthcare costs. About 25% is the average cost of smokers versus non-smokers. It could mean sleeplessness, so you don't have as productive employee. Creates more colds and flus, which means more absenteeism. And it can increase blood pressure, which is sort of that um, silent killer, ultimately, of blood pressure. And we can go to those higher costs of mental health issues. And they'll be related to and exacerbate the conditions of cardiovascular health, cancer, diabetes, asthma, back pain, and even alcoholism that wind up being high cost. So, again, there are segments in between that I'm not describing, but from low to high mental health costs, you can have low to high comorbid healthcare conditions that are generated or exacerbated by those underlying mental health issues or those comorbid conditions, things that exist and side by side that need to be treated both the mental health and the physical condition to really have recovery or improvement in health. But what about the third area, that indirect corporate cost that I mentioned might be the most important from a corporate side. The most important thing from the corporate side, these indirect healthcare costs, that at the low level of the frustration, anxiety of mental health, the minor depression, not only can it create those comorbid costs we talked about, but on the indirect corporate side, it could be things like increased errors, increased absenteeism, loss of teaming, poor morale, relationship conflicts. And let's go to some of those higher areas. It can produce low productivity on some of your key people. It could mean divorce, which means that a person really is in deep trouble, both mental health and can create physical health issues. But divorce is never good for an organization's productivity, let alone the disastrous impact it has on the individual. It can create more turnover for an organization, so reemployment costs are increased. It shows that your organization is not stable. 
They can create the idea of early retirement. I've got to get out of here. I've got to take that early retirement package because I've got so much stress on the job. I'd much rather take the early retirement and take it easy or find some other job. But if there's an early retirement package, stress can have a big impact and a high corporate cost. It could mean, again, disability or workers' comp claims are increased. So those are some really significant impacts on an organization that won't show up on the healthcare expense line, but it shows up on a corporate bottom line. So that's one of the reasons that you need to really focus on mental health issues. So companies can no longer treat stress, depression, and any mental illness as a single diagnosis. Because of the coexisting mental illnesses, many employees will not effectively recover from or stabilize chronic and persistent conditions such as diabetes, asthma, heart conditions, hypertension, or cancer unless an effective stress management program is implemented. DuPont Company did a study by the, from the University of Pennsylvania that showed depression when measured by its impact on total costs, those direct and indirect costs we just described. That depression was the highest corporate cost generating medical expenses. The second highest total cost was from muscular skeletal issues, which also likely involves stress-related costs. That is, stress can manifest itself in muscular skeletal issues, back, back pain, other muscu- mus- muscle stresses. So medical, clinical, and medication therapies have advanced such that clinical depression and other mental health conditions have cure rates equal to or greater than any medical conditions. Clinical depression can be cured. Treatments work. Medications are effective. No company, large or small, can avoid the cost of depression. Divorce, disability, and violence in the workplace can hit anyone at any time. According to the Institute of Medicine, 30,000 people die each year from suicide. And 90% had diagnosable and treatable depression or a terrible loss of life and importance to themselves, their family, their community, as well as their employer. For a small employer, the results can be devastating if a key employee or executive suffers from clinical depression. Tom Johnson, a former CEO of CNN News, likes to say, If a company's computers crashed and corporate production ground to a halt, the CEO would demand immediate action to reestablish the corporate brains of that computer system. In developing a knowledge-based workforce, it is just as important for CEOs to take care of mental health and the central computer, the brain, within each employee. I can't say it any better than what Tom Johnson just said it. I hope that people listening to this program take this seriously, take the importance of mental health and the corporate support of stress and depression programs, because we don't want more violence in this country. We see too many episodes of violence in the workplace, at schools, at churches, We've got to recognize and deal with mental health issues more effectively. And a good place to start is with employers showing the way. So let me wrap up this week's program 
with an invite to come back next week where we'll talk about fourth and fifth generation healthcare consumerism programs. I appreciate everybody's time. I'm getting good feedback and results from people listening to this program. We've got a number of outlets that are increasing the viewership. So I appreciate everybody's support, the messages that I get, some emails that I get. So please continue to listen to this. I think you'll find new ideas and a way that we can move forward in this country to have real market-based healthcare consumerism with real solutions. See you next week. This is Ron Bachman signing off from America's Web Radio and the program Healthcare Insight. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.